Good morning, church. It's good to be with you today, and it's good to see so many of you here, and it's good to see all of the folks that are visiting. We're really, really glad that you're here with us, and, and I hope that um, we'll get some time to get to know you a little bit better uh, when we're done here today, and I hope that you'll stick around and let us chat with you a little bit and get to know you. Um, but uh, I hope that you're having an excellent long weekend. Um, I hope it is a time that is filled with a lot of sun and a lot of celebration. I have had, uh, we've had both parents in town um, over the last few weeks. My, my dad was in here uh, two weeks ago, and my mom is in here this week, and uh, just got in last night with uh, Clay, who spent his, he did his first big trip away from uh, family, um, went to Colorado and was like the only grandkid for a week, and I don't really know what we've done to him by letting him do that now. I'm, I'm actually a little afraid uh, now. <laughs> Um, he's like, oh, this is what it's like. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, as we're wont to do whenever parents visit, we end up reminiscing and story swapping. And usually those stories uh, involve something embarrassing that I did when I was a kid that they love telling now that I'm older. Um, and I tried really, really, really hard to find an applicable one this week, and I just couldn't. So I'm sorry. I will try harder next time. Um, but... We, we had a lot, of, uh, a lot of conversations, and one conversation that I got into, my, uh, into with my dad was reminiscing about growing up in church as a kid and the things that we used to do before and during and after our worship times at the Littleton Church of Christ when I was growing up. Um, I used to clean up the communion with my friends in fifth and sixth grade. That was our job. Um, and, uh, and I remember the time that we got into trouble because we were shooting all the leftover communion juice instead of getting rid of it. I have now come to learn that I was actually theologically right in doing that. Um, you know, so I got to talk with some people about that. But, um, I also remember my sister and I used to have this post-worship service ritual of, uh, of going and grabbing my dad's car keys because my dad was, seemed to always be uh, jockeying for title of the last person out of the building. I seem to have inherited that from him now. Um, but they were all, mom and dad were always like staying late and talking to people. We would grab the keys and we would run out to the car and basically slow roast ourselves in the car listening to the radio, which was especially good in the wintertime when in Colorado it's like below freezing, way below freezing, but it's sunny. So outside it is bitter cold and inside the car it is like Florida. It's beautiful. Okay, so you just you'd you would just you would just kind of bake in the car and listen to the radio and like be like, take longer, Dad. Take longer. It's okay. We're fine out here. We're slow roasting and we're listening to the radio. It was a great ritual. I really liked it. Um and you know, because the basically it turned your car into a sauna in the middle of December. It was good. It was good. Um, I also remember, though, my habit of thumbing through the Bible during the sermon, looking for cool or weird stories when we were not thumbing through the hymnal, making fun of the names of the composers. Um, we did that, too, unfortunately, sometimes. Um, I don't encourage it, but uh, it was fun, I guess, when I was a kid. But I, I remember thumbing through the Bible looking for cool stories, and I, I have to apologize to Marvin Croson and Steve Watson and uh, Dale Huckel and Mike Myers and a whole lot of other guys that were like preachers at Littleton because I was not listening to what they were saying. I was, uh, again, this is probably shooting myself in the foot because now you guys are like, oh, good. Now he, he knows what it's like. We don't have to listen to him either. That's good. Um, 
But I was, I, these were the images that began to engage me, this quest for fantastic tales of talking donkeys and chariots made of fire and, and left-handed judges assassinating fat kings. I mean, like, that was really cool stuff. And I was like, I can't believe this stuff's in the Bible. This is great. That was what first captivated me about God's word, was the story, the images, the way that they sparked and fueled my imagination as a kid. That my imagination as a person, to envision a world where God is vibrantly and directly involved in, a world, in, in our world in a way that looks so different than what I saw in my day-to-day. That's still what captivates me about the Bible is that it keeps reminding me that there's a different reality going on than what I often see. That there is a reality that I can imagine where God is working still in this way. And imagine doesn't mean fiction. Imagine just means being able to create an image in your mind of something that you may not always be able to articulate in the world around you. doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it requires creativity which is inherent in our God. And it's inherent in us because he made us in his image. Imagining that counter world that we described last week, this this alternate foundational reality where God's the center of the story instead of me, and how that reconstructs my reality. If I can live in a world where fantastic things can happen again, it changes everything. A lot of people are looking at, you know, we, we prayed for Dr. Kent Brantley, um, friend and colleague of mine, um, this morning. And, and, and honestly, um, Abilene Christian sent out an email saying, hey, we're, we're asking everybody that's, that's, you know, an alum or anything like to unite in prayer over this this morning. And so all over the world, people are praying for Kent in his situation. And, and, and why? Because Kent's story is kind of a mini gospel story in and of itself, okay? Where, where he, went to go, he went to go serve and save people and actually ended up taking on the disease that was theirs himself. It's a very... See, now, I'm not saying that Kent's Jesus, and Kent would definitely not say that about himself either, but Kent would definitely say that he's walking in the story of Jesus. That that, that is a touch point to being able to imagine what it's like for us. That's an image that we can take and we can say, okay, that's what reality looks like. Reality doesn't look like getting ahead at the expense of others. Reality actually looks like sacrificing yourself in love for the benefit of others. That, that's re- that's, that is real love. That is real life. That's the way the world really works. And we have images like that in Scripture, and we have images like that in life. And both of those are things that help us imagine, create an image of the reality of God. The collection of the Psalms, I think, is one of the most imaginative books in the Bible. And it invites us to explore a full range of understanding about who God is and how creation relates to him. And if you think about all these images, they're designed not to appeal primarily to my rationality. They're designed to appeal to my imagination. I mean, I'll just take a small sampling with you real quick that leaves us with these powerful imprints of things like a despised worm, a nesting heron, 
a war horse charging into battle, a God who rides clouds like a chariot. That's a pretty cool one. I like that one. Okay, a pack of ravenous dogs nipping at our heels, a guard in the loneliness of the night seeking the first light of dawn, sheep munching contentedly on a bunch of grass near a cool brook, a refiner of gold, Winnowing forks, skin bottles, volcanoes, hail, flowers, lightning strikes, a stone fortress, and a deer sniffing for the air, searching for water in a dry and dusty land. Each one of those images is like a still life painting, if you think of it. It invites us to stop and examine the color and weigh the density and listen for the breeze and follow the scent and savor the aftertaste. Engage all of our senses in scripture have you done that with scripture that's that's one question i always ask when we talk about reading the word do we read the word for information or do we read the word for transformation do we read the word to just come and say okay so what do i need to know in order to get to heaven or do we read the word to encounter the living god and have our reality changed by it because those are two very different things And I believe that the person who merely reads the word for information to figure out what they need to do in order to fulfill their contractual obligation in order to get into the afterlife has completely missed the point of Scripture. Completely. Completely. Because that is a a great thing to strive for, but that is one piece of the whole. And if you're only taking a piece of the whole, it is incomplete. God brings us to the word for transformation. God brings us into the word to experience transformation his life and his reality and have our reality changed by it. And so I ask you, how often do you read the word to engage with all of your senses, to engage it with all of your being, with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, all of it? If there's one book that really invites us to do that more than just about any other book I can think of, it is the Psalms. It is Israel's songbook. It is Israel's prayer book. And I think it invites us to engage the fullness of our sense in a reading and an engagement of prayer and praise in a holy and merciful God because that's who it points to. Those holy and merciful things being held in tension with one another. A beautiful, beautiful tension that we get to explore. And see, I think sometimes that can be a problem for us. Okay, not, not only because, like I said, we're prone, to, we're prone to come to the Bible for information. That would be easier than coming for transformation. But I think for, for something else, it's not because we can't engage the fullness of ourselves in the imagery of the Bible or the worship that, in it, that it incites. It's because we wonder if we should engage the fullness of ourselves. Especially in the corporate setting of worship, especially in what we're doing right now. Am I allowed to engage the fullness of who I am in worship? Because let's be honest, fullness means good and bad. Fullness means strength and weakness. Fullness means the areas where I've got it together and the areas where I am a complete and total mess. That's what fullness means. Fullness means all, not just the parts that I think are socially acceptable or the parts that I would like for everybody else to see. Fullness means all of me. Should we do that? 
And I don't just mean should that for the sake of, well, what will other people think? I mean should, like, will God think that's okay? Does God think it's okay for me to bring the parts that are broken and messed up and angry at him and sad and devastated and and frustrated and what have you? Does God think that those things are okay? I think that's our major block. More than what other people think, the major block is, does God think that's all right? Over my time of experience as a worshiper, I've really wrestled with the idea that there are certain emotions and actions that are appropriate and inappropriate for the worship setting. And I know there are extenuating factors in that question, to be sure, because if my expressions of worship or my actions of worship are creating stumbling blocks for somebody else in God's family, I need to reconsider what I'm doing. And if I'm failing to recognize the authority of God or the value of God's children framed by love, then whatever worship I engage in is going to be futile. Okay, I understand that. I'm not just saying it's a free-for-all. But what I am saying is that those boundaries are wide, not narrow. They allow for a wide range of emotion and expression and worship. And so the deeper question remains then, is it all right for me to approach God in a state of despair or anger or even apathy? Or any one of those thousands of other states that I might be in when I come and I'm called to worship. When I look at the modern church, I think the, the answer seems to be a lot of, we will say it's okay, but not really. We'll say it's okay. Yeah, I, come as you are, that sounds good. But not really. But not really all the time. And yet the invitation of God in the Psalms seems to be a very, very wholehearted, yes, come as you are, but come. And I do really mean it. Their images in the Psalms are often sensational and they are over the top precisely because they make us come up short for a second. And we have to think and they draw us into discovering and even expressing things that we did not dare to face or didn't even know how to face. And that's what worship is supposed to do for us. Worship is primarily to give God the glory that is his. But if you have to ask what is it that worship really does for us, what worship does for us is it frees us to be transformed. But if we don't actually come and give ourselves to God, how can we actually engage in the process of transformation? How is he actually going to do anything with us if we're only bringing part of who we are? If we're only bringing the part that's already formed, that we think is already formed in the way that he would like it to be formed. How's he actually going to do anything with us? It's one of the greatest benefits of worship for humanity, the clarity that it brings to us, and the clarity that it brings to our existence, the good and the bad. And yet that honesty, I think, sometimes repels us rather than draws us in because of our own hesitations. And yet I think if we can't experience worship, and especially if we can't experience the word of God as God intends, like the Psalms, if we can't do that, then we're not actually experiencing the fullness of relationship. And if we want to do that, I think it starts with not allowing ourselves to be colorblind or tone deaf 
to the images and the stories that it brings to us. Um, I'm just going to dive into this. I have flirted so often with the idea of preaching on Psalm 137. Okay? Um, I, I have even preached on the first verses, but I haven't preached on the second half. Okay? And if you know, if you know Psalm 137, it's because it ends with a phrase that says, Happy is he who takes your little ones and smashes them against the rocks. I do not know how to preach on that verse. Because it assaults my senses. It's offensive to me. This idea, this idea that this idea that baby is being smashed against rocks and somehow that's a longing of the exiles of Jerusalem and it's in the Bible, it assaults my senses. It's offensive. It's horrific. And it's in the Bible. And those are about the only things about that passage that I am completely sure of. Okay? I'll just, I'll lay that out right there. It offends me. It is horrific. And it's in the Bible. Okay? And yet, as I was working on the sermon for an invitation of honesty and worship this week, this is the psalm that kept banging on my memory all the time. Why on earth does God allow a passage like that to be in his word? Why? Much less as a prayer that is directed to him. I, why? Because it is messy and it is horrific. And that means it's a lot like life. That's the best answer I can come up with. There's no challenge to clean up the imagery, at least not from God's end, okay? I read in a commentary on it from St. Jerome, even back in the 5th century, okay, where he allegorized the image into smashing sinful nature and behavior while it's little rather than allowing it to become full-grown in your life. And, and while I think that's a great theological truth, I also think that's playing chicken with the verse, okay? I think, I think it's playing chicken with the word, trying to allegorize it rather than being like, okay, well, what? What is that? Why would they actually say that? They aren't espousing some big theological truth here, okay? They hurt. They are enraged. It's raw rage and it's grief, and it's the same type that you see on your nightly news. In the image of the wailing Palestinian father holding his dead child amidst the dust of mortar blasted ruins. It's horrific. It's wrong. I don't care who you're for or against, the whole thing just stinks. That's not the way God intended life to be, and we all know it on a very, very deep primal level. We know that that's we know it's just wrong, right? And it is a rage in the psalm that cries out for retribution, for God to right the scales of injustice, whatever it takes. And if we want to find fault with it, if I want to find fault with it, I think I need to fall into that image a bit more and let it work on me. Maybe my temple needs to be destroyed. My city needs to be burned and reduced to rubble. My wife needs to be ravaged. My children need to be killed. Those kind of things need to happen to me. And then we'll see if I am so velvet-tongued in asking God for justice against those who've done those things to me. That's what that psalm is. 
even, even as I'm striving to follow the directive of Jesus to love and to pray for them, there is this raw agony and grief. There would be there. It would be there. That would be reality. I would not, if I were to divorce myself from all that and just, you know, stoically say, well, Jesus asked me to love and pray for that person. Okay? You guys wouldn't say, wow, he's being so Christ-like. You guys would say, wow, he's nuts. He's, he's in denial. It's not, he's in shock. It's not really hitting him. And see, that's the hang-up. That's, that's what I want to point to today. That's what I think the Word is pointing us to today. We think because we have a model of how we are supposed to behave that God cannot, will not, entertain us when we don't act that way. Did you hear what I said there? We believe, I, 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 I think, I, I fear... That because we know that we are supposed to act like Jesus, and that is true, we are. He asks us to follow in him. He asks us to be transformed into his image by the power of his spirit. We know that we have an image that we're supposed to follow in, but somehow I think that's gotten corrupted to the idea where we feel like when we do not act like that, that God cannot or will not entertain us. He will not let us into his presence when we aren't acting like Jesus. And that guilt works on us, and it messes on us, and it, and it keeps us. It keeps us out in the parking lot instead of in the sanctuary. You know what I mean by that? Like, like physically and spiritually, it keeps us out on the edges rather than in His presence. And we kind of stay at this what we feel is a comfortable distance from God, rather than getting into the middle of Him with our mess and letting Him work on our mess. Because we have this idea somehow that He can't entertain us if we're not acting the way that we're supposed to be acting. And yet, as a dad, I entertain the anger and the frustration and the despair of my kids all the time. All the time. Okay? I mean, they, they rail out loud against the unfairness of life, which usually is being displayed in the form of a sibling getting something that they don't get or the current load of chores around the house or, or whatever it is, okay? Okay? I'm not making light of it, okay, like that, but you, you know what I'm talking about, right? They rail against that. And what am I going to do as a dad? What, I, what should I do as a dad? Okay, sorry. What should I do as a dad? Okay, because I'll be the first to say that there are some days where I'm like, get over it. And, and I, you know, what should I do? Should I refuse to entertain their pain? Should I walk away from them? Whether I think it's, deserved or mature or not should i walk away from them in their pain should i respond on a, with a lecture on the appropriateness of attitude and action or should i mirror the response of my heavenly father and i draw them near to me and i acknowledge their emotion and to try and gently help them transform and transition through that experience what should i do as a dad and it's kind of a I don't know. I mean, for me, it's kind of a duh answer, and Jesus would agree. Like, it, you know, he would say, if you, Travis, though you are a flawed human dad, know that you should give this good gift to your kids. How much more does God know how to do that? And how much more able is God to approach us as we approach him in worship, even a worship that is full of pain, 
even a worship that is full of frustration, even a, even a worship that is full of sorrow or rage or any of those things. How much more able is God to do that, even if we know as people that we should be able to entertain that in one another? Because we're flawed, but he's perfect at it. Our reading today started out with this phrase, out of the depths I cry. And this particular psalm has such a special significance in the church history. Figures like Martin Luther and John Wesley have attributed this, a great piece of their conversion to this picture of the gospel that's contained inside of it. The reality of the human predicament that we're in the depths and our dependence on divine grace and grace showing up that out of the depths we cry and God responds in the depths. It's become known by the name of its opening stanza in Latin, De Profundis, the profound or bottomless depths. I really like that. Because when I talk of imagery in the Psalms, I think this may be one of the most powerful ones there is. The image of falling into the bottomless pit, of being held captive in the lightless dungeon, of drowning in the Marianas Trench, um, ensnared by the unforgiving grip of the black hole being drawn toward the event horizon, whatever the depths look like to you, okay? Out of those depths, I cry. And the most welcome part, I think, of that image is that the depths are undefined. It could be the depths of sin or guilt. It could be the depths of tragedy or despair, depression or anxiety. It could be the chains of addiction or isolation. It could be the miry depths of anger or rage or bitterness or unforgiven wrongs. It could be the literal dungeons of oppression or abuse or exploitation. The fact that the psalmist does not define the depths mean that it's my depths. It can apply to any of us. It can be your depths. It can be my depths. We don't have to measure it. We don't have to figure out whether your depths are deeper than my depths or whether your depths are more valid than my depths or my depths matter more than your depths. Okay, they're just the depths. They just are. And we're in them sometimes. Some of us are in them a lot more than others. And that is just the reality that we find ourselves in. Whatever our depths are, out of those depths, we are encouraged to cry out, not just in prayer, but also in worship. Because, and this is the gospel news, God is willing and able to draw near and to be God in the depths. The beginning of the psalm is an invitation to find the bottom in the bottomless and to know that God is there. He's actually the foundation in the bottomless and inviting worship and relationship even there at the bottom. The psalm deals directly with this theological flaw that we've got, this idea that we need to get all of our flaws cleaned up in order to approach God and worship. I've had countless conversations with folks who feel like they shouldn't pray when they're angry or that it was better to just stay home from church when they were having a bad day or that they just needed to get a few more things fixed up before they commit their lives to Christ. That is so not true. And we know it. And yet we still wrestle with it. Why? 
because we still wonder if God's principal way in dealing with humanity is to seek out our flaws in ways that we are unlike him in his holiness. I think, I think that's really the issue, is it's a misunderstanding of God. Do we think that the primary way that God deals with humanity is to look, okay, let's see what you've done wrong since I last talked to you. You know, forgive me, Father, you know, for I have sinned. It's been such and such time since my last confession. Okay, like, like is that the primary way that we deal with God? Is that the primary way that God desires to deal with us? Yes, we need to confess sin. Yes, we need to be open about it. Yes, we need to lay it into his hands. But that, is that what he's primarily looking for? Is to figure out our flaws in the ways that we're not like him? Or is there something else? Because the psalm says, if that was your way, God, who would be able to stand before you? It's a rhetorical question. We all know the answer. The answer is nobody. Nobody. There would be no hope for anybody if that was the way God operated. The depths would not only be your reality, they would be your only reality. There would be no counter world where God is working fantastically because God wouldn't be interested in working fantastically in our lives because we're sinful and he would want to stay away from it. He wouldn't want to engage in love. He'd be too busy trying to cover up the, the crap and just get away from it. The truth is the exact opposite. God is primarily interested in the forgiveness of sin, not the identification of sin. In fact, the only reason God is interested in the identification of sin and the acknowledgement of sin and the confession of sin is so that he can get it out of the way, so that he can get to the business of forgiveness. That's why he keeps asking us to approach him and confess is so that he can get it out of the way. He's like, just give it up already. God is primarily interested in the forgiveness of sin, the redemption of ruin, not marking and discarding those of us who fail to be holy. He moves into our space, he allows us to come as we are, and he invites us to an honesty in worship about who we really are and about where we really are, no matter how profound or dark the depths are. Because he meets us there. And that's not the end of the invitation. That's the best part, because that's just the beginning. How sad a psalm that would be if the story was only that we cry out from the depths and God draws near to us in the depths, and that's it. And we're all still in the depths. Right? Right? Church, it is as destructive a notion for us to think that there are places that we can't draw near to God as it is to think that God's content for us to stay in those places. Do you hear me on that? It is, destru- it is as destructive to my soul to think that there are places that God can't come and be with me. It is just as destructive to think that God wants to come and be with me there and is okay with me just staying there. We are not projects that God is trying to fix up, but neither are we simply lost causes worth of God's sympathy, but nothing transformative. 
God loves us too much to leave us where we are, and he loves us too much to leave us where we are, if you understand that. I hope you do. The other thing that Psalm 130 and so many other psalms that are laments remind us of is not only the fact that we can enter worship in any state, but also that we expect that worship should still transform us, whatever our state. To come into God's presence is to be changed. Even if that change is the beginning of just finding the bottom and the seemingly bottomless and beginning the first advances on the climb out of the depths. The psalm reminds us that God has given us a foundation in the depths waiting for and hoping in his mercy and who he is. I worked a night security job for a little while. It was one of the most unfun things I can ever think of. Okay? I did security for different things. Like one time I watched a group of prototype cars in Aspen. That was kind of fun. Um, when Lexus was actually coming out with the hybrids, it was pretty cool. Um, warehouse shipments, all these things. But the worst is when I was frequently asked to drive up into the middle of nowhere in the mountains of western Colorado and guard natural gas drilling sites that, uh, that were under construction. No lights, no Wi-Fi, no nothing, okay? No nothing. You're just sitting there blocking the gates with your car. You're alone in the dark, in the cold, and you're occasionally making a circuit around the fence to make sure that everything is still secure. Whoop-dee-doo. And hoping, and hoping that there are no mountain lions. Okay, you know, like, because no one will hear you scream because there's nothing around, okay? All right? And around 3 a.m., I think, is the worst because you start convincing yourself that you can see the hint of the dawn even though you know it's 3 a.m., okay? It's not coming for another three or even four hours, okay? Or even longer if it's in the wintertime. It's terrible, okay? But you know that the dawn is inevitably coming, and when it does, you get to rejoin life again instead of being on hold and alone in the dark and the cold, just waiting, right? Because nobody's coming. And it is this image of transformation in the Psalms that God gives us when we come as we are in worship, the invitation not only to the honesty of where we are, but an honest appraisal of what's coming. If the certainty of the dawn can overcome the listlessness, the listlessness, sorry, and despair of a night watchman that's stuck in the dark and the cold, how much more is the assurance and the certainty of God's redemption and his steadfast love ready to overcome our listless despair? whatever the depths are that we happen to find ourselves in right now. How's that for an image for you? If God is more certain than the dawn, how much more can we put our hopes in him when we're in the depths? The wisdom for us to glean from the psalms of lament are twofold. And these are the two invitations that I really want to leave you with, church. The first is that wherever you are this morning, you are welcome to enter into the worship of God. To bring the full range of your emotion, good, bad, or ugly, into his presence. Because he's already in the depths with you. His presence is already willing to bridge the gap your direction. All he's asking you to do is acknowledge that. And to be real with him. 
And the invitation and challenge for us is not only to accept and believe it, but to actually move to practice that together. And I think what that looks like is being willing to lament as well as rejoice before God. To offer our tears with our praise as worship. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Is it not sweet to believe that our tears are understood by God when all else fails? Let us learn to think of our tears as liquid prayers. Of weeping as a constant dropping of intercession that will wear its way most surely into the heart of God's mercy. I invite us to learn how to explore the full range of motion and emotion as we worship together again. Rather than restricting ourselves to some carefully constructed but ultimately false church base. It doesn't do anything for us. It certainly doesn't do anything for God. I would like us to also consider the invitation to transformation in worship today. As devastating as it would be for us to refuse to come to God as we are, it would be even more devastating to our soul to buy into the lie that we're supposed to stay where we are. I mean, how futile for us to bring our burdens and worship to God, to lay them at his feet, experience his presence and his majesty and his mercy, and then when we're finished, pick them all back up and put them in our pack and walk out into the world again. How terrible would that be? It's not for us. God desires you to be freed from both of those lives today, church. I pray that you will. And so as we come to worship, as we come to the table of mercy in Christ today, let us come resolved to be welcome as we are, yet embrace the hope that God is not going to leave us that way. Let's praise him in his holiness, in his mercy, his forgiveness, and his power to redeem us today. Let's stand and let's worship him in his fullness.